4: Good evening, folks, and happy holiday season to all of you. And thank you so much for coming back and joining me this week on the final episode of 2023 of Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. You'll hear me say this a lot tonight, but the final episode each season is one I put a little extra thought into because the show's going to be off for a couple of weeks as we all put the focus where it should be, on celebrating the holidays with our family and friends. So I want the last voices you'll hear to be ones that are going to resonate with you over the time that we're apart. So I wanted to bring in some people who are very special, ones that have done some great things out there, whether it's in our game or associated with our game, plus folks that are outstanding people, just as individuals, wonderful people that mean a lot to me, and I hope become very special to you as well. And I think I've done that. Leading off tonight's show is going to be Mitch Lawrence. You know how much I love the Lawrence brothers. I had the privilege of finally meeting Mitch in person earlier this year. He is such a joy to spend time with. Tonight, I'm going to get his thoughts on all the craziness going on right now in our game. And I want to get his unique perspective because, as you may remember, Mitch almost exclusively plays Hickories. So rolling back the golf ball isn't going to mean much to him. But as a historian, what does he think about it? Plus, everything going on in our game right now with Live Golf, the PGA Tour, trust issues, John Rom leaving to take millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to go over to live, how much is that going to impact Mitch's desire to watch golf on TV? We'll find out when he joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll be joined by the guy who has produced the greatest sports documentaries and films of this or any other time, and that is Ross Greenberg. Speaking about a guy that means a tremendous amount to me, Ross has been so fantastic over the years as part of this show, plus Thursday Night Tailgate, our show over on the football side. Ross was the president of HBO Sports back in the 80s and the 90s. He was responsible for their shows inside the NFL, HBO World Championship Boxing. He was there for the Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas fight. Later, he did documentaries for the USGA on Jack Nicklaus, particularly the 1962 US Open and the great battle between Jack and Arnie. He also did one on the 1991 Ryder Cup, the War at the Shore, and the 1999 U.S. Open won by Payne Stewart. So a ton of things to get into with Ross tonight. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. And later on, we'll round out the show with former PGA Tour pro David Peoples. He'll be making his next on the tee debut with me. David played his college golf at the University of Florida. He went twice on the PGA Tour Plus. The 1990 Kapalua invitation, which for some reason wasn't a sanctioned tour event by the PGA at the time, but what a tremendous field he beat that week. David and I have lived Starcross Live. We both lived in Winter Park, Florida at one time. We both lived in Germantown, Tennessee, which is where he still lives today. One of my childhood friends works for his wife, which we discovered earlier today as we were texting back and forth. So I'm very excited that I get to have David as part of the show with me. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So a lot of great stuff in store for you tonight on the final episode of 2023 of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I have been working with a company called Kickpoint. And they have done some magical things with our logos and created some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt, they're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middlemen. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Now let's talk about golf getaways and buddy's trip locations. When you're thinking about that, think about our friends over at the McLemore, which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen-Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. you got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to Macklemore.com to book your stay-and-play package. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin Grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability, with their fingerprint technology, creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lambkin Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back with me is one of the great people you get to meet in this life, and certainly one of the best individuals in our game, and that is Mitch Lawrence. For years, Mitch hosted a great podcast called Talking Golf Getaways. He is one of the great experts in our game on golf history and Hickory Golf Clubs. If you were to ask me, who would you put in your dream foursome? For sure, Mitch Lawrence and his brother Matthew would be two of them. Our game is better because Mitch has been involved in it. And every year when it comes to the final episode of the season, I put a lot of thought into whose voice do I want to leave you with? And this guy's name always pops into my head right away because there are just none better. Good evening, Mitch. How are you, my friend?
2: <laughs> I uh, I don't know what to say. My face is red. I'm blushing. I thought I knew you. And every time we do this show and every time I get to hear your voice, I just um, I couldn't echo that sentiment more, man. I couldn't be happier and more grateful to be your friend and to close out another year talking to you about the game we love. So thank you.
4: Absolutely. So, Mitch, when you reflect back on the evolution that you've seen in our game since you started playing, and I know you took up the game a little bit later in life, but the things that you have seen from the evolution of the golf clubs, from the evolution of the golf ball, from the distances being added to golf courses, what are your thoughts about what you see now versus what you saw then?
2: Um, It's such an interesting question. And obviously there's so much going on with the game right now, Chris. And uh, I certainly I started playing when I was 30 uh, in 1980 um, and up until very recently. And uh, sadly, there's so much in the world that falls into this category. Um, this is, uh, I never in the 40 plus years now, almost 44 years that I've been involved with it actively and passionately. Um, I feel like there's so much swirling that has nothing to do with the game. Um, and that's the biggest takeaway for me. I think, you know, everybody who plays, everybody who watches, everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different level of skill. As we know, (laughs) I'm reminded of it all the time, Um, (laughs) but everybody approaches all these things in a different way. The difference now is that because of social media, we all know a lot of the time unwillingly or certainly in a way that's not particularly wanted how a lot of people feel. We get to see it all the time, which we never used to until uh, the advent of all of this and i think that throws even more confusion into it when i look back on the game the way it was over the last 40 something years and then for certainly there's been um you know through the eras of golf and all the different iterations of the game there have been you know uh discussions and arguments and differences of opinion about some of the things that we're talking about, you know we talk about the rollback of the ball and all that goes into that, and there's so many different ways of looking at it. Those discussions have happened before in the game. The ball has always been um, you know a source of kind of uh, interest and and speculation, and it's just always been there. It's changed over the years. I mean, I remember going up to Uh, Banff in Canada and playing what's now uh, Fairmont Banff Springs, which is one of the truly great golf courses, Stanley Thompson course. And I was in the eighties. So I hadn't been playing that long and I got up there and when I got there, they gave me um, the balls that they sold in the pro shop were the European balls, which were smaller. And it was the first time I had ever played one. And really the first time that I had any experience with using a different ball than the one we played in America. Um, So this kind of discussion has been going on. What do we do? What don't we do? What do we allow? What don't we allow? Uh, But what it's brought me back to, and this is just my perspective, with all the noise about it, about the tour and live golf, about all these different subjects, is that, I don't want to get away from the game I love. I don't, the, the ball issues don't impact me. And I think for a lot of amateur golfers, they will not impact them. Um, there are definitely players that it will impact in a certain way, but I don't want to spend my time worrying about that or focusing on it. First of all, since the effect the effective date is, not, is 2030, which is six years from now, when that takes effect, I'll be 80. That's my plan. Uh, so I have a very different view of all this. I, I don't believe that these issues, certainly John Rahm making 400 million dollars does not impact my life in any way. So though I enjoy discussing things with friends or it has no real impact. And so what I'm trying to do now is turn off that noise, frankly um because i you know the other day i went out on friday and got a chance to play with our mutual great friend jack curry oh wow Um, yeah and we went out we there's a charity in myrtle beach and in the southeast called all four paws and they had a fundraising day and we got our dog through that great rescue operation and uh it was a Team Scramble, and I asked Jack and his wife Joanne if they wanted to join me, and they said, Yeah. We played Caledonia, which, as you know, is one of my favorite places on the planet here in Myrtle Beach. And Jack and I were talking about it during the day, and we were just talking about all that and reminding each other that the actual important thing was what we were doing being with friends, playing golf hitting shots, laughing, trying to get better, even though we knew the chances of that happening during a particular round weren't that great. Um, but that kind of realization is what I keep trying to feel all the time now. That the, And I know you're a grateful guy, and just being grateful for the game we have and not get lost in all the things that don't really affect us Uh, Certainly, they affect a lot of people. There's, you know, manufacturers and the tour and yeah, it affects people. I get it. But on a very. I won't say selfish because I don't think of it as being selfish. I think of it as being reminded of what's important. Uh, So let's,
4: let's take that last part a little bit further, because to your point, none of this really impacts or affects most of us. Now, I would say where it might start to impact us or affect us is our desire to watch the PGA tour and to watch golf. Because to your point, this is all going to happen to us six years from now, 2027 in October. We won't be able to buy the same golf ball that we buy today, but it is years into the future and a lot can happen. But where I think this could start impacting all of us is our desire to continue to watch the PGA tour with all the craziness, with live partnerships with the PIF, trust, who do we believe, who lied to who, all that sort of stuff can taint the PGA Tour and impact our desire to turn it on on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Is that a place where it might actually affect you?
2: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And that's the way that it does affect us. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's a really it's a really valid point. I mean, I'm, there's two things. One is, as you know, I'm a Hickory player. So uh, the discussion about the ball really means nothing to me. I've been playing a replica, you know, golf ball from the 1920s for the last 15 years. It doesn't go far. I play, (laughs) I play hundred year old clubs. They don't go far. My body is 74, it doesn't go far. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, that part of it is I've kind of checked out of that. But as far as watching it, there is no question that I am most times now not interested. And I think a lot of that is a byproduct of everything that's going on. I mean, I used to, I went from being a guy who back in the days of uh, VHS tapes, literally taped every tournament, all four rounds. Of every tournament and would then watch them. I, I was completely obsessed with watching golf. And fast forward to now, and with very few exceptions, most of that being watching a lot more of the LPGA, which I really like watching, um, and the stories that surround golf, which I'll catch on Twitter or, you know, my friend Ryan French. Who does all the Monday Q stuff, uh, the stories that he tells about players trying to get their cards, or I'm much more interested in that stuff, in the stories of the game than I am in watching. And I know the players are they're as great as they were. They're they're amazing to watch, but I and I think a lot of people are really feeling this way. Um, And that is that if it's a major, yeah, you know, I'll probably tune in the first couple of days. And if if I feel compelled, I'll watch over the weekend. Uh, I was lucky enough this year to go to the Ryder Cup in Italy, in Rome. Um, And it was an unreal experience, the experience of being around people um, in that kind of atmosphere in a team competition and all that goes along with that. Yeah, I'll watch that because it's a different story. Otherwise, for me, at this point, um, you know, when I think back on the last year and I wonder how you feel, the times I really wanted to watch were the compelling stories. I mean, the PGA and watching Michael Block and, you know, those kinds of stories, I went, wow, I'm watching this. Uh, because otherwise I'm just not as interested. And I I think it's a great point. You bring up the, the danger is that people who once loved just watching and watching the best players in the world play the game are probably not as interested because of all the, as we said, of all the noise.
4: Yeah. And I tell you kind of where I stand, I mean, forever. And not just in the in the game of golf. When when you talk to a lot of the great players, they talked about how they played the game for the love of the game. You know, yeah. Kevin Costner, right? But, yeah. but now with Live and, and guys getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars to defect, and you mentioned the Ryder Cup, and, you know, we all know about the Patrick Cantlay thing. And, yeah. you know, did he not wear the hat in, in protest? Did he, you know, want to get paid to, to play in the Ryder Cup? those kinds of things to me take away from the game because yeah. what that tells me is for some of the bigger players in our game it is all about the money it's all about the money it isn't yeah. about the love of the game it certainly isn't about the fans it's all about me and i know golf is a selfish sport there there isn't a team out there for the most part i know live golf has its teams and and stuff like that It isn't a team event, so you got to be out there and you've got to be myopically focused in order to win golf tournaments, particularly majors. But it has taken away some of, I don't know, you want to call it innocence, whatever. It has taken away some of my love of the game at the PGA Tour level, not at the, as you talk about the grassroots level and us hanging out and playing and my buddies and I going out and playing and having a good time together. That to me is still intact. But the PGA Tour has really, I, I think, Fallen in my eyes, because it's no longer about I want to win majors. I want to have a legacy. It's all about I want my money.
2: Yeah, and I think the best example is, and to me, I mean, I don't begrudge anybody money. I don't begrudge them making a living. Uh, We watch other sports. You know, I watch I watch football in the NFL and talk about baseball. And all of a sudden, you've got Shohei Otani going on with four hundred million for this, and you know. All that stuff is still going on. Uh, I remember having a conversation, there was a great giant, New York Giants football great named Alex Webster. And I got to play in a whole bunch of celebrity tournaments with him and we were having dinner one night and we started talking about the money. And he said, do you know, and he was on the New York Giants championship teams. These guys were great. I mean, YA Tittle, Frank Gifford, those years. He said to me, do you know that not one season went by even when we won a championship where I didn't have to have a second job in the offseason? And he was one of the best players in the game for years. And I think about Phil's fall from grace, no matter what you think about live or should there be a world tour or whatever, the politics of it has gotten so nasty. I when Phil and I guarantee you, your listeners think this. In some sense, I was it was hard to think of a time when I was more excited about watching a golf tournament than watching Phil win the PGA championship at Kiowa. It was absolutely riveting. All of it to me, the whole scenario, him against Brooks, him at his age, Kiowa, the whole thing. And how quickly that went from. I I revered him. I kept looking up to him and going, and I know he'd had issues before, but the fall from that perspective, because of what, whatever his, you know, motives are, they're Phil's motives, they're, I don't care. But that fall to me is kind of emblematic of the whole thing. So when John Rahm says, uh, I had enough money before, and he spent a year and a half saying that, and then all of a sudden to go, I want to grow the game. Okay, great. But a whole lot of people don't believe him, which is, I think, what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And why yeah. I keep, I keep, and a lot of people keep, looking back to the greats of the game from the past, who, like you said, were playing because they grew up loving the game. They love the competition. They love the level of play. And I, I feel like that it's really hard to find people who somehow we can trust that that's what it's still about. I guess yeah. that's. And it does make me sad.
4: So let's take one of those last words that you said trust. Mm-hmm. I think that is what has been broken in the game. I think yeah. there's, trust has been broken between the guys at the Jay Monahan level and the players. Trust has been broken between the players and fans because we've heard people tell us all the things that we wanted to hear. And then, like John Rahm, a few months later, have gone and gone back against what they said. I'll never forgive Jay Monahan for how he stood up with the families from 9/11 and told them how much he was in their corner and how bad it was for people to go over and take the Saudi money only to theoretically take the Saudi money now that that deal hasn't been finalized but he went behind everybody's back to try to make that deal. Right. And so that trust has been broken for me at both levels between the players and us as fans between the organization and the fans, between the players and the organization. That, to me, is the worst thing that has happened because now we don't know who to
2: trust. Yeah, I totally, that's, that's exactly how I feel. So that's why it's important as we end this year, Chris, to people who are glass half full people, to go back to why we love the game. And maybe it's a good thing for that because it's really, going to force people in a certain way to remember why the game is so compelling. It's because we play it. It's because we love playing it and all the circumstances around. I get to, I got to take two trips this year with great friends to unbelievable destinations um, and spend time with them and hang out with them. And, you know, getting to see your face in person was a highlight.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine why.
2: Well, it was. I was just you and I sitting on the bat on the porch at Caledonia and talking. I know. I mean, those connections are that's the stuff of life to me now. And I cherish those friendships and I cherish the game for giving me those friendships. Um, every every great thing in my life as I sit in my house came to me because of golf. I met my wife because of golf. Uh, my, where I live is because of golf. Most of the friends I have now that I'm close to are from golf. So I'm going back to that stuff, man. And 2024 will be even stronger when it comes time to remember why I'm playing the game and why I love it.
4: So let's talk about something more positive in the last few minutes that we have together. You mentioned going over to Italy for a Ryder Cup. I Uh can't imagine what that was like to be in that kind of atmosphere. What was your Ryder Cup experience?
2: Well, the great thing to me was uh, about going over there to see it, frankly, uh, was, I mean, there's all the the stuff about the Ryder Cup. You're you're incredibly in awe of them setting it up and what it takes to actually have an event like that. And I mean, I could go on about the way they set it up, but not the course, but just everything around it. Uh, The... From I walked in, I went to the practice round. But when I walked in Friday morning at six fifteen, along with about fifty thousand other people, you walk past that for behind the first tee, and that whatever they built behind that first tee, which from the outside they made kind of look like the Coliseum, and at six fifteen in the morning, which was an hour and fifteen minutes before the first shot was hit. You could hear the entire First Tee stands were filled with fans, most of them European. And you could hear they were already singing inside. And it was surreal. And I turned to these uh, friends of mine that I was with. And I literally said to them, we're done. (laughs) Those were my words. And once I got inside, and this goes back to kind of what we were talking about, I went around the course. We went to different spots and got to stands before the groups got there so we could sit and watch it on a big screen and the whole thing. But sitting in the middle of the European fans during that event, it just told me a lot. It really told me a lot about why it's so important to them. And it's a cultural thing. You know, they grew up with this. The players grew up revering Seve. That's the, he was their guy. And you feel that stuff. And I just, I thought, and they were incredibly respectful. You know, they went crazy for the Europeans, but when an American player hit a great shot, they applauded, you know, and I, again, I hate to bring it back to this, but my, my fear is what Beth page is going to be like in the next one. Cause I don't think it's going to be, I mean, will there be fun? Yeah. But I have a little trepidation about where, where it's going. But Italy was fantastic. Um, the venue was amazing. The the people, it was, I'll never forget it. I really will never forget it. And I'm really, really glad that my wife and I got a chance to go.
4: So one of the things, and I, you've not only done fucking golf getaways, you, you've done several golf-related podcasts, and you have been immersed in our game for all the years that you talked about earlier. If you had an opportunity to put together a round table of whether it's legends that are no longer with us or people in the game today, who would you want to sit down with and talk to? And what would you want to ask them?
2: Oh, that's a tough question, Chris, (laughs) because I literally have been so lucky over the years to talk to so many amazing people. Um, I would include, uh, I did a podcast with Peter Thompson. he was in Australia. I talked to him. Absolutely amazing guy, David Graham. I mean, I got to talk to people like that. I would love to have both of those at the table. Um, I think somebody like Annika to get a perspective on the women's game, uh, who I got to talk to, uh, a mutual, great, great mutual friend of ours, Ben Wright. Uh, you know, I long for his voice. I had did three or four podcasts with Peter Alice um, those are the people that I would want to talk to just for perspective and humor, <laughs> <laughs> certainly in the case of the last two, um, but, um, you know, and I, th- I guess the people that, that I love in this game, you know, in, in this time, in this place in my life, I would want to have the people around me at around. It would be a big round table, Chris. You'd be it there. Would. You'd be there. I appreciate um, that. My brother would be there. My wife would be there. I think that a mixture of people who had the perspective of really being at the top of the game in historic times and the people that I love that I play with now, you know, and kind of have over the years.
4: Mitch, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can we stay up to date with you and all the great things that you're out there continuing to do in and around our game, whether we're following you online or it's on social media?
2: Well, most of the time now, uh, Darren and I and Chris McEwen, we still do what we call special edition talking golf getaways. We did one a couple of months ago about our trip to Sand Valley, which was five amazing days. Uh, we're about to do another one at the beginning of January with Patrick Koenig, uh, who if you follow Patrick Koenig on Twitter, he just he set the Guinness World Record for rounds of golf in one year. Um, which is now in the 550 something rounds of golf oh in a year. I uh, just played his 10,000th hole this year. So yes. we're going to do a, a special one with Patrick, who's one of the great people in the game. Uh, and that'll be on Golf Trip through Golf News Net. Uh, Ryan Ballinger's great golf news net at Got NewsNet Net um, on Twitter and Instagram, com, And uh, as far as I go, it's just uh my biggest contacts, and the the there's a lot of bad about it, but there's a lot of great about it when it comes to being with people, and that's just twitter uh which is at mitch Lawrence so that's how I still get it and still connect with people and um you know it's it's gotten a little slower relative to what I'm doing in the game, but I still throw my hat in the ring every now and then. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, Mitch, like I said at the top, if I'm going to leave my listeners with just a few voices until the start of season number 11, I absolutely want one of those voices that reverberates in their minds to be yours because you're a treasure, my friend. I'm so lucky that I get to call you that.
2: Well, I appreciate that, Chris. You know, I feel the same way about you. I love you, man.
4: Right back at you, my friend. Happy
2: 2024, pal. I'll see (laughs) you again this year.
4: I'm looking forward to that. Happy holidays to you and yours. We'll catch up soon.
2: Okay. Thanks, Chris.
4: See you, Mitch. That is the great Mitch Lawrence, and uh, I just love that guy. Everything about him. He is just one of the most wonderful individuals that you will meet in life. He's a kind person. He's certainly more knowledgeable about the game of golf and its history uh, than I am than, than, than most people are. He's just a fountain of great information. But aside from the game of golf, Like I say, he is just one of the most wonderful individuals that uh, I've been blessed to meet in any walk of life. Not just in the game of golf, but just any walk of life. So I'm so thankful to have him as a friend. So thankful he has been on the show 14 times, uh, including tonight. And uh, I certainly hope I get to uh, be in his presence again in 2024. Coming up next is going to be one of the most talented and special individuals on the planet, and certainly in the world of filmmaking, and that is Ross Greenberg. Before I get to Ross, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say.
3: An average player... I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58.
4: There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arco's and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arco's Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to construct.com and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com and use code Chris for 20% off the green collection today. Now back in making his seventh appearance with me here on Next on the T is a guy that I and my co-host Bob Lazeri over on our football show Thursday Night Tailgate we think the world of, and that is Ross Greenberg. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, the last episode of a season is very special to me. I put extra thought into who are the last voices I want you to hear, because I hope those voices are going to resonate with you while we're all off celebrating for the holidays. So the guests tonight are all very meaningful to me, and they are people that I hope you say that guest was really something else. And I know you're going to do that with Ross Greenberg. He is one of just the absolute wonderful people that you get to meet in this life. He spent 33 years at HBO served as vice president and executive producer of HBO Sports from 1985 to 1990, senior vice president and executive producer from 1990 to 2000, and president of HBO Sports from 2000 to 2011. He's produced the most incredible series in sports that I've ever seen. He did Sports of the 20th Century as well as Sports with Brian Gumble, Inside the NFL, and HBO World Championship Boxing. He left HBO and created Ross Greenberg Productions and has made some of the best sports documentaries of this or any other time. He and his team are responsible for the all-access shows on Showtime, The Road to the Winter Classic, and Road to the Stanley Cup. He did a series for the USGA on Jack Nicholas, plus Jack Nicklaus, The Making of a Champion for Fox. And those are just a few of the great documentaries that he has been a part of. He was also the executive producer of the movie Miracle, about the 1980 US hockey team. He's won well over 100 major television awards. And it is an incredible honor that I get to have him back with me here this week on Next on the T. Hey, Ross, thanks for coming back on the show. I'm doing well, Chris. I am.
3: I have a little cold, so those of you who know me won't recognize the voice.
4: But I'm here for you. I appreciate you very much, Ross. <laughs> thanks for playing Hurt. Yeah, I'm playing Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ross, catch us up a little bit. What's been going on with you so far this year?
3: Well, first of all, uh, Bill Russell on Netflix If you haven't seen it, we just got honored by Sports Business Journal as the documentary of the year. So uh, it's a very powerful, important film. And, uh, you know, he was a good friend and he deserves this kind of treatment because very few athletes have ever had the impact that he has. And uh, he was a wonderful man, wonderful human being and very difficult to understand at times. But uh, he made his presence known. In the world of civil rights and there'll never be anyone like him again i'm also working on a a film another film uh, which reminds me of miracle in many ways it's on the 1999ers uh the women's soccer team that beat china and uh and really changed the face of women's team sports they were probably the first team that was recognized as real competitors you know they were title niners Who had then taken the game to another level and uh and it hasn't looked back and women's sports are blowing up now as you know in 2024 so you know we'll reminisce with mia Hamm and julie foudy and and we have a writer who right now is sitting down with all of them to perfect the script because you can't make a good movie out of a bad script so uh so we're very excited on that Um, we're not sure when it'll come out We just have to make that script perfect. And I have another podcast at uh, ESPN, which they haven't announced, so I can't announce it. It'll be a 30 for 30 podcast. And on the back end of it, it could become a mini series, a scripted mini series. So a lot of action going. Would love to get back into the world of golf, as you know. Um, You know, I was reminiscing when you were talking to Mitch. My first job, or one of my first jobs in sports television, was as a spotter for Ben Wright, uh, and before that, Henry Longhurst. And uh, you know, you guys took me back to that when he mentioned Ben's name. He was a real character, but there was no bigger character than than Henry Longhurst. I'll tell you that.
4: Well, so let's take that a little bit further. Ben Wright was a wonderful friend yeah. of this show, and uh, was on many, many times. And I'm, and I like, like Mitch said, I echo what he said, and I missed his voice. I missed his you know, everything about him his friendship. He uh he meant a great deal to me. And Henry Longhurst, as as you know, I mean those guys did the masters together. They did a lot of broadcasts together over the years. So what was it like being kind of in between both of those guys?
3: Well, Henry was a character. I was on the seventeenth hall in the tower at Wingfoot, and Henry was getting older. It was the nineteen seventy-four Wingfoot Massacre. And so we went up there on a Thursday and Finally, you know, on Friday, we had a rehearsal and someone said, look, you're going to have to help Henry up and down the scaffold, because in those days, they were kind of tricky stairs. Wasn't so great. And uh, he was a little long in the tooth. So what I didn't realize was we got him up and on Saturday and Sunday, we literally had to carry him down because when the television would go to a commercial, Henry would pull out this little flask and take a hit. And, uh, and so by the end of the day, you know, he was pretty plastered, Um, (laughs) but I will tell you (laughs) there was no greater sense of humor and no greater delivery with that English verbiage that was so rare. Uh, And he was so honest. Oh, he missed, missed, hit that one. You know, he, he just was very to the, to the essence of every shot. Uh, So he was a wonderful human being as was Ben Wright. Very similar senses of humor. Ben was very direct and candid and funny and uh, and also had his way of delivering a lot, Uh And in, in a British way, you know, not an American.
4: Ross, since we last spoke, this show has been picked up by my hometown newspaper, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Right. You, can, you can find the show right there front and center on their digital yeah. sports page. And one of the films you did for the USGA was about the 1962 yeah. U.S. Open. There at Oakmont, that duel between Jack Nichols and Arnold Palmer, it would become Jack's first major championship. Talk about that film and the dramatic 18-hole playoff they had.
3: I'll tell you that there are some days in my life on a set that I'll never forget. One of them would be wrapping up the movie 61 with Billy Crystal at Detroit's Tiger Stadium. But the second most memorable, and maybe the first most memorable day, was... Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, I got them together and we needed to shoot the two of them on site at Oakmont and Bob Ford, the legendary you know, club pro was so w- welcoming and warm to us. So the two of them took a helicopter and the helicopter swoops in, they get out and we start shooting them around the 10th tee, 9th green, you know, in that whole area. And uh, and had them walk the 18th hole together. Uh, you know, obviously had a lunch with them, which I'll never forget. Um, in which everyone seemed to order Arnold Palmer's, which was fun. But but the, the, there were a couple of moments. You want a really fun story? So, so on the 17th hole in 1962, Jack had a downhill three and a half footer. Which if he had missed, he probably wouldn't have, you know, gotten into the playoff with Arnold. So lo and behold, you know, I decide that we would bring the very putter that he used, the one that won 13 of 18 championships, or maybe it was 18. I, we brought the putter from a, a, a museum in Columbus to Oakmont. And the guy with the white gloves was there, you know, the guy who took all of this memorabilia away. And he handed the putter to Jack, and I wanted him to recreate the three and a half footer. And so he got over it and camera's rolling and he hits the putt and it goes straight into the middle of the hole. And I said, you know what? We're doing a take two just because Jack, you're ridiculous. And so (laughs) sure enough, we did a take two. He drained it again. We did a take three. He drained it again. He just drained like 10 in a row. And finally, at the end of that little shoot, he turns to the guy with the white gloves. I forgot his name. And he says, You know what? I may take this putter and put it in my bag. I forgot how great this putter was. And the guy with the white gloves goes, Jack, Jack, you're not taking that putter. It's a million dollars. You're not taking a million dollar putter and putting it in your bag. That's one of the greatest stories I could ever tell in the history of sports television. That's awesome. I, I will. You want one more, Chris? Please. Okay. So later that day, We're shooting them on the 10th tee, and I wanted to walk from the 10th tee down. So they're walking down, they walk back up, you know, I had them do a few takes. And so all of a sudden, there was a women's tournament happening in the local Pittsburgh area, probably a pretty prestigious one, and they were good golfers. And so all of a sudden, I look back, and I see on the ninth green, a twosome is done and finished, and on their way to the 10th tee. And I said to Jack and Arnie, I said, you know what? Let's give these two women the thrill of their life. Why don't you guys just sit on the bench right in front of that tee? And just we'll, you know, we'll just all watch as they tee off the 10. And sure enough, the two women come by. And I swear to God, it's like a 605-yard par five, by the way. And uh, although for the women's tee, it's not, but we were at that tee. And so these women got to tee off, and by the way, both right down the middle, probably 225, 50, 40 yards, and Arnie and Jack were sitting on that bench smiling, and these two women had the moment of their life, and apparently, there was a photographer there, and one of the women belonged to Oakmont, and at the end of the round, she had a photo of Jack and Arnie, you know, watching as she teed off. Wow. <laughs>
4: That's awesome.
3: And I always imagine the dinner conversation with their husbands. <laughs> with all that night. Guess what, honey? Oh, yeah. how'd you do in the tournament? Well, I forget the tournament. You know, guess what happened on the 10th hole?
4: <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And Ross, I know you've spent a lot of time with Jack and Barbara and Nicholas over the yeah. years. What are some of your favorite stories when you were just sitting down, just chatting? With Jack and Barbara, what are some of the great stories that you got to hear about?
3: Well, I mean, we were at the the house in Jupiter a couple of times, uh, within like three months of each other. And he has this separate room where he has all of these, uh, to be honest with you, the top layer is all the animals that he killed on many, many trips into the wild. Um, And then, you know, it's a beautiful room. And he likes to do the interviews there because it's so easy. So Barbara, you know, in a couple of these shoots, it was Jack and Barbara, um, and we did them separately, but they had a lot to talk about because, you know, the making of a champion, when we went through his life story, he had all these amazing stories of, of going to the 60 Open or the 62 Open, and, and we needed her there to kind of remind us, you know, of uh, of Jack's idiosyncrasies, the most memorable I think moment was when Barbara, off camera first, Barbara described the pants. He had a very uh, severe case of doing everything the same way every time, every tournament. And he had one pair of pants that he liked to wear, kind of an off yellowish, brownish, whatever, uh, pair of pants. And for the four rounds at the 1962 Open, he wore those pants and Barbara said, well, he damn well could have stood him up in the side of the room, you know, on Saturday, because they were so disgusting. <laughs> and I just thought they were so down to earth and so much fun, um, but so sweet, both of them, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget Jack is so funny because before we'd sit down to do the interview, he'd always say, now, you know. I don't, I'm getting old. He was, let's say, 72, 74, 75 when I did those interviews. And, um, and he'd say, you know, I, I don't remember everything. Uh, so, you know, I'll give you as much as I got, but I don't remember anything, everything. And so sure enough, I'd sit down, start firing questions, and he'd know every shot at every golf tournament that he ever played. I mean, he's just, he's just amazing, amazing man.
4: You also told the story about the 1999 U.S. Open that Payne Stewart won. Mm. I've had a lot of Payne's contemporaries on the show, and they all speak so reverently about him Mm. and what a huge shock it was when we all learned about the plane crash. Your film celebrated not only his win in that U.S. Open, but also the man that he was. Yeah. Talk about that.
3: Well, many people don't realize the man that he was. I mean, you know, he had a reputation of being a little aloof, cold. Um but in talking to his dear wife and you know all the players around him, yeah, there was a real love of the man. Uh, and he was a giving person. And no one was rooting harder for him than all of those other players that year. There was something about the magic of of pain and his charisma. Um, you know, the one story that, you know, I remember Getting a kick out of was when he showed up on that Sunday in 99. And it was kind of a hot, muggy, rainy day. And can you imagine fourth day of the US Open? And he takes his scissors out and creates the first short sleeve windbreaker. Um, you know, just with the scissors, <laughs> chops the arms off. And wow. the way, way everyone talked about it was so much fun. Because he just didn't care. He just was gonna do what was gonna make him the best golfer. And uh and so and by the way, you know, pretty pure swing too,
2: huh? Yeah, of
4: course. Wow. One of the emotional moments in that doc was the, the salute the players did for him the next yeah. year at yeah. the US Open at Pebble Beach. He had guys, you know, forty one players, I believe it was, hit that yeah salute drive out into the ocean from did you get an opportunity to speak to any one of those 41 players and how emotional it well, was for sure. them to stand there and hit that shot
3: sure we spoke to quite a few now i can't remember at the time i had some of the players but um i remember we spoke to quite a few of his contemporaries who had to hit that shot with tears rolling down their face um it was just incredibly emotional on the 18th tee at Pebble Beach. Think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it's, doesn't get any more emotional than that. Um, and I can't remember whose idea it was, um, but it was a great idea. And, you know, it became kind of an epic story in the history of the game.
4: Ross, you did a documentary on the 91 Ryder Cup, The War at the yeah. Shore. Yeah. And I've had Dave Stockton... On this show, Mark a Chip, back guys that played or coached, if you will, or managed it at that uh, at that event, and what it was like trying to play at Kiowa at that time. It was a relatively new golf course, and dealing with all the bugs, the no the yeah, wind, yeah, and the wind, and everything that was that was a part of being a being in that ninety one Ryder Cup. Talk about the things that you learned as you put that film together.
3: Well, I didn't, you know. I mentioned the wind only because I didn't realize how horrific the play was in terms of trying to battle the elements. You know, golf has a way about it, but in the Ryder Cup, you know, it's like everything's on the line and you have to battle 40 mile an hour winds. And you have to, I remember, you know, the whole where if you started it in the middle of the fairway, the wind was blowing it into the water. It, so you end up Actually aim way left of the fairway, just to have the ends hit it straight in order for the ball to land in the fairway um, and I you know I remember all those trees you know it was a new course, new design, uh, they didn't have those waste areas prior to that as much, so all of a sudden, players were playing out of bushes, and it was just bizarre, and we had this one montage. I'll never forget where we strung together about twelve of them in a row, watching the greatest golfers in the world look like they were thirty-five handicapped, and it was it was just amazing. I'll never ever forget it. But the the rivalry, you know, I don't think until I did the documentary I realized how really difficult it was for the two teams to behave themselves because there there was a lot of bitter kind of you know problems azinger and so- Seve and you know there were some issues and and things weren't you know so com- there wasn't a camaraderie today you can sense a little camaraderie but then it was like no no we, we have to win this you know and it was it was really something you'll never see that again i mean in sports there's always going to be Moments in sports history, like doing Miracle, you know, the 80 hockey game, where just because of the circumstances, you know, you can never get those circumstances to happen again. You know, we think about how many years in a row the U.S. had won the Ryder Cup, and then all of a sudden they have to take it back. Um, it, it's It's really something else.
4: Ross, just a couple more before I let you go. I want to switch sports on you. You've done a lot around the game of boxing. Mm-hmm. I know you were there in Tokyo for the Mike Tyson Buster Douglas fight. When you were around Mike during the days leading up to that that fight, could you tell he wasn't ready for it?
3: That's well, funny. The day another another great story. Okay, so the day before the fight, we had started an institute a plan where we would meet with each fighter. Um, the announcers so in that particular case Jim Lampley myself Larry Merchant Sugar Ray Leonard went to visit with Mike and we got word Mike was starting to have issues with Larry at that time so we got word that only you Ross and and Sugar Ray are going to be invited up to Mike's room so we get up to the room and Mike hey guys come on in come here I got to show you something And so he takes us over the television, and it was a VHS recorder. And he said, take a look at this. Can you believe that? And he was watching a real-life death video. Oh. It was like an hour of strung-together people that had been shot, had been drowned, had had died in a variety of ways. It was real-life death. And, And Sugar Ray and I looked at each other and went, whoa, okay this is, this is not good for Buster Douglas and I, and then we went to Buster Douglas uh room after that with Larry and Jim filled them in on on Mike's take of the fight and then we go to Buster's room and he sounds like me right now he had the worst head cold i think i've ever heard in my life and i would and we left that meeting and i said but He talked very emotionally about the loss of his mother two weeks prior, and we knew he was trained and ready. He was a guy that, you know, would put on a lot of pounds between fights, but he looked in unbelievable shape. And so sure enough, the next day, I turned to the the announcers when we left his room, I said, this is gonna be a massacre. this is a disaster. And he was 42 to one underdog. So we get there the next day, and all of a sudden, Tyson walks to the ring and he he doesn't he looks a little out of sorts. Douglas enters the ring and he looks like a focused, you know, just a magical moment in his life was about to end. And so sure enough, Tyson's pacing in the ring. The first 30 seconds of the fight happen. And Buster Douglas hits him with a straight left jab. I'll never forget this. And I hit, I hit. Jim Lampley's IFB, which is how producer talks to talent. And I said, Jim, we've got a fight here. Because I had never seen Tyson get hit by a jab like that. And his head was stationary. And then the rest is history.
4: Ross, before I let you go, remind our listeners again, how can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing on your website? Plus, how can we watch all the great things that you're going to be coming out with in 2024?
3: Okay, so look for ESPN to make an announcement on their Thirty for Thirty podcast, which they will do probably in February. You you will know Netflix has already announced the Ninety ers film, so I'm sure I'm sure once we start production, you'll hear of that. I would hope we start that in the spring uh, or summer, and then of course you know Netflix will continue to herald you know Bill Russell because it didn't win that best documentary award uh, and we'll be up by hope for some Emmys and stuff. Um, and you can always go to Ross It's a pretty healthy website and it'll show everything I've done in the past and everything we're going to be doing in the future.
4: Ross, I can't thank you enough for playing her tonight and coming back and being a part of the show as as I said to you, and I've been saying all along tonight's episode, The voices on the last show of any season are ones that I really think about and uh, because I want them to be important. I want them to resonate with my listeners long after they've listened to the show. And I want them to be somebody who has been very important to me over the years. And you have been so gracious with your time. Again, this is the seventh time I've had an opportunity to to sit down with you and, and talk with you about your great career and the great things that you've done. But thank you so very much for all that you have meant to me on this show on Thursday night tailgate. And I hope we get that privilege of catching up with you again in 2024.
3: You got me, Chris. Always. You know that I really feel the same way about you.
4: Thank you, Ross. Happy holidays to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. Thank you. See you, Ross. That is the great Ross Greenberg, folks. And just like uh, Mitch before him, one of the great people you get to meet in this life. He has done so many outstanding films and documentaries. Very much looking forward to watching the Bill Russell one. Haven't had an opportunity to to plug that one in, but uh, as a guy who spent a lot of years in, in Boston in the 80s, uh, Bill Russell reverberated, even though that was long past his playing career. He always was a part of what was the old garden. And uh, in in Boston Celtic lore, obviously, he'll live in there forever. But I'm uh, very much looking forward to that. Looking forward to finding out what's going on with the 30 for 30 podcast. And then the 99ers over there on Netflix. All things that I will be watching over this holiday season. And very much looking forward to having Ross back as part of the show in uh, in the new year. Coming up next is going to be a guy I've been very excited to have as part of the show. He is a former Florida State amateur champion a medalist at Q School, a three-time winner out there on the PGA Tour, and a heck of a nice guy. His name is David Peoples. Before I get to David, I want to remind you about two under men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code N-X-T-O-N-T-E-E 20, so next on T20, to save 20% at checkout. So go to 2under.com. that's a number, 2-U-N-D-R.com. Two Under, performance in your pants.
1: Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes!
4: Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Okay, now making his next on the tee debut with me is David Peoples. I wanted David to be a part of the final episode of this season for a few reasons. First, he shares the same birthday with my middle daughter, January 9th. He's from Augusta, Maine, and Maine is one of my favorite places on the planet. We've lived in the same city twice, Winter Park, Florida, and Germantown, Tennessee. Beyond those things, here's more about his background. David played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1979 to 1981, where he helped them win the Florida Intercollegiate and Dixie Intercollegiate tournaments, And he teamed with some great players while he was there, like our good friend Mark Calcavecchia. In 1979, David won the Florida State Amateur Championship, He turned pro in 81. He was the medalist at Q School in 1989. He won twice out on the PGA Tour at the 1991 Southern Open and the 92 Anheuser-Busch Classic. He also won the 1990 Kapalua International, which was a non-PGA Tour sanctioned event, but it had an incredible field filled with PGA Tour legends, and he won that tournament by five strokes over Davis Love III. Over the course of his playing career, in addition to those three wins, He had four runner-up finishes, five third-place finishes, 23 top fives, and 37 top tens. And I couldn't be more excited that I get to have him with me this week here on Next on
1: the T. Hey,
4: David, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Boy, this is a tough act to follow, Uh, Mitch and Ross were – that was amazing.
4: I appreciate that very much. (laughs) But let's, let's go back to your early days because Maine, like I say, is one of my favorite places on the planet. How long did you live in Augusta?
1: I think maybe about six or seven months. <laughs> wow. Not long at all. Not long at all. My parents moved down to Orlando and, uh, and then I was in Orlando for 46 years of my life. So, University
4: of Florida, was that, was that it for you? Is that the place that you were going to play college golf come hell or high water? Cause I have to imagine there were a bunch of other colleges looking to recruit you.
1: Well, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I had my heart set on it. It was, it was sort of like a little dream there that you have, you know, playing, being a Gator and, and playing for, for a school like that. It was, it was really cool. Um Before that, Hal Sutton had given me a call and asked if I wanted to come to Centenary. So I took the trip up and, you know, we did the, the tour of the campus and everything. It was, it was very nice. And especially, you know, have being Hal Sutton, it was like, it was, you know, really nice, but uh not quite University of Florida.
4: You were there at the same time as another great friend of this show, Mark Kalkavecki. What was it like for you teaming up with Mark?
1: Oh, it was great. It was great. He got there, I think, a year before me, and I'm pretty sure he was the SEC freshman of the year or something. You know, and uh, it was just great getting to play with all those those players. You know, we had a good team. We didn't really gel very much as a team, but um, we had a lot of fun along the way. That's for sure. Rick
4: Pearson was also one of your teammates. He was an all American medalist at the 1980 sec championship won three times on what's now the corn Ferry tour. And today is his birthday. Oh, by the way, tell us about Rick.
1: Rick is probably was the, he was the leader of our team. He was definitely the best player on the team. Um, you would, you would think it would be Calc, but Calc hadn't quite, you know, gotten to his level at that, that point. Rick was just, uh, he was like a robot, and I mean, he's just this stocky guy, and he'd set up to the ball, and he'd hit this nice little ten-yard draw every shot, um, and just a just a great, great player. Just he, we all had a little, we had attitude problems, you know, and clubs got to, uh, got flying lessons quite a few times with that <laughs> that crew. <laughs>
4: So let's take that a step further because I heard a story and I wanted to, to see if it was true because after one of your tournaments, I heard he putted so poorly that he tied his putter to the back of the team van. And when asked what he was doing, he said, it let me down so badly. I'm going to drag it all the way back to Gainesville.
1: sounds like that, something. That's Pierce. That's, that sounds like Pierce. It sounds like Calc too. <laughs> Actually, it sounds like a lot of guys on that team. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, once we were playing, we used to play these things called the Orange and Blues. Those were our qualifying rounds. And uh, I got paired with Calc and Larry Rentz. And, uh, yeah, we're going off the 16th tee. And this is uh, this is the year after Calc had already kind of messed up a little bit at the NCAA tournament, um, going off and destroying a garbage can and gallery posts and all that sort of stuff. And I was right behind him, witnessing the whole thing. Well, anyway, we're at the we're at back in Gainesville and qualifying, and uh, we all tee off. And I'm the first walking off the tee. I'm probably thirty yards ahead of the guys, and here comes two drivers, Worley Burton, right over my head. <laughs> I just turned around, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> anyway, uh, the ladies' coach, Mimi Roger or Mimi uh, Ryan, uh, up at the tee, saw some of the antics that was going on and uh, escorted Calc off the course again. <laughs> Just like like what happened at at the Ohio State Scarlet. yeah, It was hilarious.
4: (laughs) Speaking of Larry Rents, I heard a story about him sneaking over to try out uh, with the Gator football team. He wanted to see if he could be a punter. And he did so well that he got into a final putt-off with another guy until someone went and told your coach what was going on. And he went over and pulled Larry out of there because he was too valuable to the golf
1: team. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, that that that's definitely. I, I hadn't heard that one, but um, I know for sure that our quarterback Bob Yucco, they were kind of you know horsing around at the golf course, and uh, I, think, I think he ran into Larry, and Larry was a big, strong guy, and. He Larry didn't move and Hugo went down and 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 I think Hukos basically said, Please don't tell anybody that this happened. <laughs> so we lost our quarterback for a few weeks oh, on that
4: one. Brutal. Yeah, and
1: yeah, yeah. And Larry could punt the ball I mean, he, he was he was, we used to call him the animal. He was the animal.
4: You guys played against a lot of great players during your college days from other schools. I know Paul Leisinger was at Florida State during that time. What was the rivalry like between University of Florida and Florida state and playing against Zinger?
1: You know, we never really, I didn't seem like we crossed paths much. Um, you know, Zinger went to uh, his freshman year. He went to Brevard community college uh, over in Coco area. And I went to Valencia in Orlando for my freshman year. And, uh, they were, Brevard where, where Zinger played, they had an A team and a B team and Zinger didn't make the a team he was on the b team and he wasn't shooting very good scores you know he wasn't i don't know if he started late or what the deal was but next year comes around and you know he's he's at uh florida state and from that point forward i I have never seen anyone improve at such a fast rate of pace as he did he uh you know pierce and i were up there i think in uh, atlanta athletic club trying to qualify for it was either u.s open or the u.s amateur i'm not sure which and uh, we looked on the board, and it had you know how all the guys got there, and advanced onto the where we were at that time, at that which stage we were in, and uh, and there was that Zinger up there, won by like five shots. And every time I looked after that, he was was right up there. Um, he you know he went on to went on to qualify. I think he won medalist the first uh, time he tried the Q school, and rest is history. <laughs> As
4: you saw when you checked out the show, Tom Patry is a regular guest here with me. When some guys see that TP has been on the show 89 times now, they kind of look at me with their heads a little cocked, wondering what I'm thinking. So (laughs) I, first of all, thank you for not doing that. But um, you guys were in college at the same time. He was at Florida Southern, not all that far away from Gainesville. Did you get to know Tom at all while you guys were competing in college or afterwards?
1: Yeah, we did. Um some of the amateur tournaments, I think we got we got uh I I got to meet Tom and uh I think more so though on the mini tours, like the Space Coast Tour and stuff like that. Um and then as the years went through, you know, my first year um on the Champions Tour, I I down in Naples, Florida, uh I ran into him down there and uh you know, he he helped me with my golf swing a, f- a little bit and um it was really good. Got to go to dinner with him and his wife Denise and that was great. So um, is actually, you know, coming up, I hope we're hoping to move down to Naples. We got a little condo down there and, you know, whenever time comes for my wife to retire, we're going to try to settle down, down there. So maybe I can run into Tom a little more. There you go. Let's go back. <laughs> either, and... either that or avoid him. <laughs>
4: Indeed let's go back and talk about your wins on the PGA tour. And the first one came at Kapalua in November of 1995 stroke victory over Davis love the third. And that when you shot 63 in the first round, never looked back, talk about getting your first win and, and doing it over a, a tremendous field. Not only Davis love finishing second, Nick price was third. There are a lot of legends out in that golf tournament. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, that was uh that was a sort of a culmination of that year, 1990. I mean, before that I had, uh, I had gone to the tour school so many times. I think I I counted them today. I actually went and looked them back up. I I, I got through that thing seven different times. So I'd I'd get in my car, lose my car, get it. Anyway, I finally got to 1990, and I played really well. I think I made 26 cuts out of 32 events, and uh, I was just playing really, really well. And uh, I just caught lightning in a bottle, I guess, that particular week. Um, Played like I knew what I was doing. I actually, I actually made it through the Q school seven times. I finished the first one. I finished uh, fourteen shots behind Donnie Hammond. Um, He beat me by fourteen, and I finished second all by myself. So that just tells you the kind of week he had.
4: (laughs) We've talked to Donnie several times about that week. So yes, that was something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was incredible. But anyway, that that uh, that that Kapalua for me was. Um, You know, to win that tournament by five shots with Nick Price and uh, Tom Pertzer and just a whole whole bunch of really good players. I think everybody was taking their time at the beach, though, and just let me, let me go. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Your second win came at the Buick Southern Open in 1991, uh, just a little south of me here in Atlanta, Callaway Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia. This time you beat Robert Gomez by a stroke. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1990. You were tied for the lead after the first round. You trailed Gomez and, and Larry Nelson by three going into that final round. But you shoot 66. You overtake him. What do you remember about that week?
1: You know, I remember I remember f- uh, finishing the third round and going to the range to, you know, you know, hit a few balls. And I really didn't have a lot to work on, but I just should cool, cool down, I guess. And it was the first time I really thought about winning you know and i and i said you need to think because i always kind of avoided that thought you know because i choked my guts out so i just said you know you need to embrace this and you need to you need to think about winning and uh man i tell you what it it really made all the difference i went out and started out like a house of fire and and kept it up and i think i went bogey free that day and shot 66 and uh So, you know, I always was a little on the timid side. And when I get up there, I didn't want to think about, you know, winning or any of those kind of things. But uh, it turned out that uh, you really do need to to face the music, you know, and step up.
4: And as I recall, when I was doing the research on that tournament, not only did all of that happen, but you also had to battle the elements that day. I think you guys had about an hour and 13 minute lightning delay. So you had a lot of things going on around.
1: Yeah, that was tough. You know, we we made it to the ninth green, finished the ninth hole, and it finished up right at the clubhouse. And then they called it, and we all went into the clubhouse, you know. And, you know, everybody's trying to talk to you. I mean, I'm just – I'm looking for a locker to, to, to climb into to just so – I don't have to talk to anybody. You know, I'm just – I'm so nervous. It was unbelievable. And then uh, it's time to – then it was finally time to go back out, and uh, I managed to stay away from everybody and played pretty darn good down the stretch except for those last two. <laughs> David, at the PGA Tour
4: level, the game feels upside down to me right now. With everything that's going on between the proposed merger between the PGA Tour and the PIF and Liv going out and buying John Rahm, everything that's happening right now, the, the loss of trust between the players and the executives at the PGA Tour level, Jay Monaghan and his folks, trust between us and the players, everything seems to be upside down. I want to get your thoughts on what you're seeing going on right now.
1: Well, you know, I you know like Mitch said, I don't begrudge anybody, you know, trying to make a living and I've tried to do it and did my best at it, but uh it felt like a gut punch really when when I heard the news about John Rahm going over because he seemed to be so adamant about, you know, staying in support of the PDC tour and um you know, and you know that old saying everybody's got a number Well, I guess that we found out what his was. So, um you know the I the tour, the PGA tour is, it always seemed like things were going to work out. This is a different feeling. <laughs> you know, before you always feel like you, you felt like, you know, this all—this is all going to come out in the wash. You know, and because they've always, yeah, they always have looked after us very well. And, and uh, but this is a totally different deal. And uh, yeah, it doesn't look good.
4: David, when I was looking back uh, again over the course of your career, I know you played really well here at Callaway Gardens, winning that tournament in '91. The year before, in 1990, the tournament was held at Green Island Country Club. You went out there in the second round, shot 62. That the best round that
1: uh, that you ever played? Yeah, that was pretty good. That was a pretty <laughs> good one. Uh, I think I shot in relation to par. I think at the uh, what was it, the Bank of Boston Classic at Pleasant Valley, I shot 63, but that was a par 72. So. That was nine under as, as opposed to the, um, the 62 at Green Island. It was a par 70 I'm thinking. And so it was an eight under eight under round. So I go with the one at Pleasant Valley.
4: <laughs> so when you think back on your career, what are, what are the tournaments? What are the events? What are the things that you got to be a part of that, uh, as you reflect on them still make you smile to this day?
1: Boy, i tell you pretty much, you know, every one of the Q schools that I made it through. Cause that is, it really is a brutal tournament to go through. And we just got to see some of it this past weekend. Um, uh, when they, they're playing, playing at Sawgrass, like we did before. Um, but you know, winning the, winning the tournament at Kapalua, I think was the crowning jewel for me. Um, it, I've never been to that Island before and, and just to have a week like that was, uh, that was about as good as it gets. Do
4: you have a favorite shot that you think about that? Boy, that was just so pure that was just such a a big moment that you rolled a putt you made a shot whatever it was is there something that sticks out to you
1: i i do remember making a hole in one at hartford um and they had a it was uh i think buick buick was uh sponsoring the hole or something and it was a uh, it was you know you win the car if you get a hole in one it was a four iron it was a long shot and i thought for sure i had that car and uh i didn't I did, and I I think it was John Adams ahead of me. Two groups ahead of me made the same shot. No, yeah, yeah. So I was just looking to see if I could get a hubcap or something. You know, (laughs) (laughs) You Deserve (laughs) that? That was brutal. No doubt. (laughs) Fred Ridley,
4: who's obviously the the chairman of Augusta National, is also a former Gator or Gator alumni. Has that helped at all? Has is, is Fred been uh, amenable to get you out on Augusta National?
1: Absolutely not. No, <laughs> no, no, no. But he seems like a really good guy, though. You know, he's doing a <laughs> heck, heck of a job. <laughs> oh, after winning that, you know, the Southern Open, I got to go to the Masters. Um, and that was, that was the big deal about that, that whole thing is was winning uh, the, that, that tournament in, in Columbus, Georgia, there at Callaway Gardens. Is, you know, if you win that event where, you know, the Kapalua term didn't come with that invite, but, but the, uh, the tournament at Callaway did the Southern open. And, uh, I was, I was in the, in the clubhouse and finished and here comes Robert Gomez was making a little charge and he hit it in there about 10 feet on the last hole. And man, I tell you, that was the most lonely feeling standing there on the putting green, watching him from about 50 yards away. You have no, you have no control over what that guy does. And I'm like, if 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 he makes this, I'm probably going to make ten on the first playoff hole. So <laughs> I'm definitely not going to win. You know, all those positive thoughts going through my head. And uh, sure enough, he just lipped it out. He hit a great putt, and, and then then you you realize I'm get I get to play Augusta National, and and that was that was just an incredible incredible feeling.
4: So what was it like when the invitation came in the mailbox?
1: No, oh, it was just it was it was unbelievable. Just I, I you know I I didn't really know anything about the invitations, and and then there was just this beautiful uh you know envelope and uh, the the invitation the whole nine yards. It was just it was great. Um, it, it, this is the whole whole different level of of golf right there. That's for sure. You know I, I can remember playing practice rounds there, and I didn't I didn't want to leave the golf course. I just wanted to keep playing. And I, we, my caddy and I, we just kept going around and around and around. And uh, we happened to do this on the day that the uh, the par three tournament was, and they closed the course. I didn't know that, and uh, I was getting ready to go off number one again. <laughs> and he said, "Sir, sir, it, the course is closed now." The next day was actually the real tournament, and uh, I, I I was going to play till dark. <laughs> 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 Until they drugged you off the golf course? Until they drug me off. I mean, it's the most <laughs> beautiful course I've, I've ever seen. And, you know, after watching it all those years and and just watching all the great tournaments with Jack and Gary Player and Watson and all of them, and then you're there, you're actually there. It's, it's just, it's surreal.
4: Was it what you expected? Because for all the years that I watched the tournament, and I've been blessed to be out on the property every year since 2001, but prior to that, TV just doesn't do justice to what right. that golf course a looks like, and b the elevation changes are unbelievable. Was yeah. it what you expected, or was it very different for you as well?
1: No, I was I was amazed at the, the elevation changes. I couldn't believe I couldn't believe how hard the 18th hole was. You know, I mean that hitting off of a lie like that into a basically a blind green. You could see the top of the flag a little bit, but it was incredibly That's difficult. And uh, number eleven, also, I, I was like, now I know why everybody hits it way over there to the right. It's either over there or it's in the water. You know, and, I mean that that hole is incredibly intimidating. It it was, I I always thought, you know, because you know, in the older older days before I got there, they the whole thing was mowed to fairway length, I think. And uh, then then I guess it had been a couple of years before I got there that they actually grew a little bit of rough, but it really wasn't anything terrible it you might catch a little bit of a flyer or something like that but it was still a pretty darn good lie you know and uh anyway my first year there i was paired with billy mayfair and uh i think it was da wybring and uh we were the last group we were the only threesome on the golf course and and we were the very last ones so everybody had finished and we're i'm I'm telling we're good six groups behind so there's nobody out there and the 4-0 guys are in a big v-shape following us down the fairway (laughs) because apparently i guess we were pretty slow we never got we never got time though or anything but i guess just because we were the only threesome on the on the course but it was such a weird feeling there was nobody there we get down to the you know the 15th green go across the there's nobody in the stands (laughs) and now that was a little disappointing
4: (laughs) (laughs) David, whether it was in a practice round or maybe away from a tournament proper, who are the guys that you really enjoyed playing with and who kept you rolling while you were out there?
1: You know, I, that's a good question. I, I I always tried to get out by myself. I always kind of kept to myself a little bit, but uh, one of, I, I used to love playing with Rick Fair, just a good guy. You know, I, I've, I've seen where he's been on the show a time or two.
4: He has. Um,
1: uh, he, but uh, you know, Chris, for the most part, for the most part, I just, I honestly just tried to stick it out and get out there and get my job done and get out of there.
4: <laughs> you played for a little bit out there on the champions tour. What was it like going from being on the PGA tour and that transition over to the senior tour?
1: Well, it was great. Cause, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, I actually had to play leading up to being 50 play on the, uh, corn Ferry tour It was called something different at that time, but, uh, it was very difficult, you know getting out driven by fifty yards every hole by those young bucks um <laughs> and, but but getting on the getting to play at uh on the champions tour was just just amazing um the courses were a little more suited for what our capabilities were, you know, and all that and uh I got off to a really good start um had some top tens and uh just for, I really enjoyed myself there. My whole game plan was to be out there for about 10 years, but only made it 3 before the, the arthr- arthritic back started acting up, so mm. that was that was the end of that, but uh you know, and, and then you, and then you when you don't play for a while, you know, you lose your speed. So I've tried to play these days. I, I'm still trying to play recreational golf. I mean, I'd love to do that cuz I just love the game so much. Um but it, it's it's a little on the painful side. <laughs> it's not easy getting old is it Ah, i hear you beats the alternative though and indeed it does
4: (laughs) david before i let you go let everyone know what you're doing now
1: well i'm pretty much just retired just waiting on on kimmy my wife to uh retire and get on down to naples and there's a golf course seems like on every corner so i'll probably find my way out to one of them
4: how can our listeners stay up to date with you? Whether it's uh, following you online or it's on social media.
1: Well, Chris, I just get on Facebook, you know, and nose around there, and see what's going on. So I, I guess that Facebook could probably be where you could find me, Dave Peoples. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm really not tech savvy at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, a good thing my wife's here. I would. I don't think I would have figured this thing out.
4: <laughs> well, my my thanks to her, <laughs> David. Well, I that, can't thank. Thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and and be a part of the show. You're a treasure, my friend. I hope we get this privilege. I feel like we've probably just scratched the surface of the great things that you've done over the course of your career in the game. I hope, uh, like I say, we get the privilege of having you back on again as we get into 2024.
1: Chris, I would love that. And thank you so much for, for the invite. It's been great. And I really look forward to seeing you.
4: Thank you very much. David, take care Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: You bet. You bet. See you, David. See you, Chris. That is a great David
4: Peoples, folks, and uh, just a wonderful guy. How great was that conversation and, and the things that he has done? Again, a guy that uh, that won two times on the PGA Tour, a third. It wasn't a sanctioned event, but probably a tougher field that he had to overcome and that one five third place finishes 23 top five 37 top tens and uh just has done a lot of great things in and around the game so uh the time at florida unbelievable with the guys that uh he got to be teammates with and the things that they got themselves into and out of so i'm sure we'll talk more about that and get mark his perspective on some of that as well but uh david is great and uh, like i say we've lived in the same city a couple of different times had some similar experiences so uh I'm very thankful for him for coming and being a part of the show. And like I say, we'll catch up with him again in 2024. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furick and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this season of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Mitch Lawrence, Ross Greenberg, and David Peoples for closing out season number 10 with me this week. I'll be taking next week off, but we'll be back with you the first week in January. And scheduled to kick off 2024 with us will be Our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, of course, will be here. LPGA Tour Pro Megan Francella will be making her next On the T debut with me that week. We'll also get a return visit from Dr. Bob Winters, who was fantastic when he joined me on the show not all that long ago. And then also making her next On the T debut will be former LPGA Tour Pro and now broadcaster Jane Crafter. So, folks, it's going to be a great way to kick off 2024. I hope you'll tune in and join us. As you know, you can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review site. So just go to TribLive.com, click on Sports, and then Podcast, and you're going to find Next on the T available for you free front and center right there on that page. You can also find the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Boom, and Player.fm. And as always, my thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts and a staff pick. Please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on your favorite device. But as always, most of all, my sincere thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year to you and yours. Until next time, hit them straight, my friends. consultation.